I'm Dr. Yella Hewings Martin, Senior Research Editor for Medical News Today. That was me putting my children, aged three and six years old, to bed. Good night, girlies. Good night, mommy. Good night, dada. Good night. I love you. Good night. The kids are finally asleep. It's ten past nine. We had about five books, and then lots of singing, and cuddling, and holding hands. It's a fairly standard night. Although it did go on a bit tonight. I know our family is not alone suffering from disrupted sleep. Poor sleep is a condition that affects one in three people in the United States. In this episode, we're exploring all things sleep. How has COVID-19 impacted on our sleep? Does wearable tech actually help or hinder our sleep? And does sleep affect our immune system? First, let's meet our panel. Dr. Eric Prather runs an insomnia clinic and conducts research into how sleep affects our immune system. Eric Prather, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Professor Nancy Kolob runs the Emory University Sleep Center and is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. Nancy Kolob, welcome. Thank you, happy to be here. And Dr. Afifa Shamim Uzaman is Chief of Sleep Medicine at the VA Ann Arbor Healthcare System. Afifa Uzaman, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Yella. I'd like to start with you, Afifa. Can you paint a picture for our listeners of what a typical day is like for a sleep physician? Sure. So during the day, I go to my sleep clinic. I see patients either face-to-face when they come into clinic or now with the COVID pandemic, we're doing a lot of virtual visits with patients. I also spend quite a lot of time reading the sleep studies that we perform overnight on our patients. And I'm also on call overnight for the sleep technologists when they are performing sleep studies in case they run into any concerns or issues during the night. Across the spectrum of people that you see in your clinic, What would you say is the biggest challenge for you in sleep medicine? Just in today's uh, world or before COVID? Oh, actually both. That's a very good point. Yeah. How, How has it changed? The COVID pandemic changed the way we practice sleep medicine quite a lot. In the past, before COVID, patients came into clinic primarily. We evaluated them. In my clinic, actually, people who have sleep apnea, we make interventions right there and then in clinic with them. So if they need mask changes to be more comfortable with their PAP, also known as positive airway pressure therapy, emotive therapy, where there's a device that the patient uses while they sleep, and it basically forces air under pressure to act as a splint to keep the airway open. 
since COVID happened, we've had to change our practice significantly for that. We came up with very creative strategies. We had times when patients would drive up to the front, our nurse would run out with the machine, and then we would call them on a video call. Now we've gotten to a point where we can mail the devices out to patients. We've relied a lot more heavily on home sleep testing until we could get our labs back up. And now that they are back up, we have a lot of personal protective equipment that our staff have to use at night. Nancy, I wanted to ask you then, as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine, what research have you seen and are you seeing right now? Well, if you want to stick with the COVID vein, there's been a lot of manuscripts that we've seen lately that are addressing how the pandemic has affected sleep. Are people sleeping better or are people sleeping worse because of COVID? In some ways, COVID has improved some people's sleep, believe it or not, because they're working from home and they can have a more of their own schedule. Whereas in other ways, it's made it much more stressful. There's also evidence to suggest that Afifa talked a lot about sleep apnea, that people with sleep apnea, they have some unique pressures with regards to COVID too, because it seems to have a worse outcome in people who are overweight. And although not everybody with sleep apnea is overweight or obese, many of them are. And there seems to be some associations with a poor outcome related to COVID in that population. So COVID has been a challenge for sure. But we also are seeing research on all the other sleep disorders that there are out there. And there's a lot of new and exciting medications and treatments that are available to treat sleep disorders now. And so the booming technology that's available to help us with tracking sleep and sleep disorders, I think is, is kind of the next wave of sleep research that we're gonna be seeing. Eric, do you wanna add anything? Yeah, with respect to like our clinic, there has been a change, it seems, in the types of problems that people with insomnia have had. One thing that has become more common throughout this pandemic is the increase in people experiencing early morning awakenings. So they're able to get to sleep, but then they wake up at four o'clock in the morning and are unable to get back to sleep. And, you know, that's obviously a challenge because as you sleep, your sleep pressure diminishes. And so you don't have that same kind of oomph of sleepiness to get back to sleep. So if you have these additional stressors, it makes it that much more challenging to get back to sleep, to get that last little bit of sleep. Though, you know, I, again, as Nancy said, looking at the epidemiologic data, there is this portion of people that are certainly getting better sleep and really speaks to the importance of reducing commute times and giving people some more autonomy that hopefully will change some of the way in which we work in the future, though, of course, I'm excited to do this type of thing in person um, <laughs> someday. What is causing these early morning awakenings? So we all wake up many times throughout the night and we often don't remember it. From my view, it's not that we're having potentially more. It's possibly that as we wake up, because we, we've kind of already diminished some of this sleep drive and people have maybe additional arousal due to stressors or due to other pressures in life. It's just making it so that people are having difficulty getting back to sleep. You know, I would defer to my esteemed colleagues too, if they have some insights into what might be causing that. But, you know, as a sleep psychologist, that's my viewpoint. And so Nancy and Afifa, do you have any comments there? Well, I was just going to say that we've seen an association with early morning awakenings and depression and mental health issues. There have been some studies 
published looking at sleep changes or the quality of sleep, the satisfaction with sleep, the use of sleeping pills since the pandemic started. There's one that was done internationally that was actually in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine that showed that 58% of people were unsatisfied with their sleep during COVID than before COVID. People tell me that they wake up in the middle of the night and then all of a sudden they start thinking about all the uncertainties in life right now and all the stressors that are going on and then they can't get back to sleep. So I think that is contributing to the early morning awakenings. Nancy? Yeah, when we go to sleep, I always tell my patients, it's not like a light switch. There's different levels of sleep that you go through. And the first part of the night we sleep predominantly because we've been awake all day and that pressure to sleep has built up during the day. And then in the second part of the night, we sleep more because of our internal rhythm helps keep us asleep. And so people that may not have as strong an internal rhythm perhaps may have more awakenings in the second half of the night. The other thing that happens is every hour and a half or so, we have a REM sleep period, which is where we will typically have the most dreaming and remember our dreams. And so oftentimes there's a natural kind of awakening after this dream sleep, and you tend to have more and longer dream periods in the second half of the night. So what might precipitate the awakening might be, you know, waking up out of one of these REM periods, the rapid eye movement is what it stands for, because that's what we see on the sleep study. But then everything else that Afifa and Eric have talked about kick in, it's like, oh, gosh, I'm awake. I got to go back to sleep in a couple hours, but I have all this stuff I have to do when I wake up and it just starts to build. And then everything kind of goes to pot and <laughs> you can't go back to sleep. So I was wondering what your take is on these wearables and, and whether they are actually increasing people's anxiety about these awakenings. Sure. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. I, I uh, have patients that'll come in and I ask them, well, are you sleeping better? And they'll say, well, my watch says, and I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what I asked. I said, are you sleeping better? Because people can get so focused on what their watch is telling them or how they're sleeping. And so I think they have improved the awareness as sleep as part of your health. But some people take it a little bit too far because the apps are not perfect. And sometimes they can be confusing for people because they'll use descriptors like light sleep and deep sleep, which you think, oh, I'm not getting any deep sleep. Well, most of us don't get that much deep sleep through the night. So I think there's a good and a bad aspect to the wearables. I completely agree. The creation of these has done a lot for getting people excited about sleep. So I really appreciated that aspect of it. But clinically, a lot of people... It, it's sometimes the cause of why they come in. They come in with their graph and they're like, look, look, look at this. Like, I'm not getting any sleep. Like, you know, what do I do? I'm going to get dementia. But sleep changes as we age. Oftentimes, patients aren't aware that they're within the, the normal range um, just because their referent point is like when I was 20, you know, and it's like, unfortunately, we, we just won't get that time back for sleep and so many other things in our life that work better then than they do now. And, and that's okay. And so I think a lot of the role of sleep providers is to provide that information, that education, help people see where they sit for someone like them. And, and often that is relieving and can help people take better stock of their sleep, but without that anxiety piece. Yeah, I totally agree with Nancy and Eric. Um, wearables are great in that they've taught patients 
to look at how much they're giving themselves the opportunity to sleep. Most of the wearables don't necessarily measure brain activity. How we define sleep and how we determine if somebody's asleep or awake or what different stages of sleep the person is going through is based on the brain activity and the changes in the brain activity while they sleep. Now, with the wearables, most of them have accelerometers or gyrometers or something that actually measures movement more so than actual electrical brain activity. And yes, absolutely, muscle tone changes during different stages of sleep. So you may move more during some stages of sleep. You shouldn't move at all during like REM sleep or something like that. But what they are really measuring is not so much sleep, but movement. So where they're really great and where they excel right now, these wearables, is having patients pay attention to how much time they're actually giving their bodies the opportunity to sleep. That's really interesting. I think as a member of the general public, we've all become very reliant on comparing you know, our sleep stats from our different watches and wearables. So on the topic of poor sleep, Eric, I'd like to come to you now One of your areas of research, as you said, is sleep in the immune system. For some of our listeners, this might be a surprising connection. Could you tell us what the link is between our immune system and sleep? Sure. Yeah. Sleep is intimately tied to the immune system and to circadian rhythms as well. A good example is when we deprive people of sleep compared to people who sleep normally, our T cells might not divide as well when challenged. And in there are some cases where if we deprive people of sleep, or people report high levels of sleep disturbance, they may show elevated levels of proteins that are key to inflammation. So inflammation has been associated with the risk and progression of a variety of chronic conditions. We've done work experimentally where we take individuals and we expose them to live virus. So in this case, the rhinovirus, also known as the common cold. We'd like measure people sleep with a wrist actigraphy. So kind of a souped up version of a wearable to get a research grade measurement of habitual sleep time. And then we bring them into the laboratory, expose them to a known quantity of live rhinovirus, and then quarantine them to see who in fact ends up getting sick. So we measure how much mucus is produced in these individuals, whether they're infected. So we kind of culture up their nasal fluid to see if the virus is replicating. And then we also do a, a measure of congestion where we squirt some dye into someone's nose and we time how long it gets to the back of their throat. And the longer it takes, the more congested they are. And so if someone's infected and someone meets these criteria for these objective symptoms, they're deemed to have a cold. And so in several studies now, we found that people who sleep six or fewer hours on average, they're about four times more likely to get sick. Of course, that's like a very unique paradigm. And so we've tried to expand that to vaccination response. So in like a series of different studies, we've found that people who sleep less, again, uh, just mount fewer antibodies to vaccines like the influenza vaccine, as well as the hepatitis B vaccine. And right now, we're in the process of carrying out a study looking at the COVID-19 vaccine and whether sleep and a variety of other psychosocial and behavioral factors predict how well people respond and maintain those antibody responses over time. Nancy, you looked like you wanted to comment there. No, I think it's uh, very cool stuff that they're doing. And I've been doing this for a long time. And so even 15 years ago, people would say, well, we don't really know why you sleep. Like, what is the purpose of sleep? But the research has shown things just like Eric's stating is, you know, sleep is important for so many things. Just trying to push sleep as a, a very important part of your health is, is really key. And so Eric, can you tell us 
one or two of the key findings that you've seen where health disparities, sleep and long-term health are linked? Yeah, unfortunately, sleep is not evenly distributed across a population. You can see this in Center for Disease Control data, just across the country in hotspots and where there are populations or communities where they get less than the recommended seven hours or more per night for an adult. And then if you take that same map and you overlay social determinants of health, um, it's striking how close that mirrors it. And with that data, you can't attribute causality, but there's a great deal of data that suggests now that individuals of color, individuals of low socioeconomic status, often don't have the opportunity to obtain the, the same level of sleep as their more well-off or, or white counterparts. So cardiovascular disease is a really good example, right? That we know that both people that are short sleepers or poor sleep quality just by subjective report are at increased risk to develop and die from cardiovascular outcomes. And we also know that there are strong racial disparities in those cardiovascular outcomes and in sleep. And so we're trying to unravel this type of thing. It is absolutely a key issue that we as a, a sleep community need to better understand and to think about how to reduce those disparities with the obvious goal of improving long-term health. Nancy and Afifa, um, is this something that is mirrored in the patients and in the clinics that you work in? And, and also, you know, that type of research, how does that inform your clinical practice? Nancy, maybe do you want to go first? <laughs> I was going to wait for Afifa. But... Go for it, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no absolutely i mean we see that all the time and you know one of the things that when you're a sleep specialist you always ask your patients is well tell me when you sleep and how many hours of sleep do you get per night and it never ceases to amaze me how few hours some people get and think that it's okay and i do think there are racial disparities that uh, accompany that yeah. And then on the other side of it, too, not only do we see the racial disparities and the other age-related disparities and sex-related or gender-related, women tend to stay home to be caregivers for their children. They're staying up late. They're doing all these things. But then what we're also seeing is that the disparities seem to be increasing with the pandemic and even with virtual care. We had originally thought that by being able to offer care to patients for their sleep in their homes, we'd be able to reach a lot more people. And absolutely, yes, we do do that. Geographically, we're able to reach a lot more people. But unfortunately, even geographically, not Every area has good, reliable internet or Wi-Fi access. There's different socioeconomic factors that may play in or racial factors that may play in about the ability to obtain or afford the internet or the Wi-Fi that we now need to have to be able to provide care during a time like a pandemic when people can't come in. So it's affecting sleep in multiple different ways. So it's clear that sleep is intricately linked with our health. Can I ask you each then for your top tip, if there is a top tip, on preventing poor sleep leading to long-term health issues? There's not just one, though. <laughs> you only get one, Afifa, sorry. <laughs> I only get one. Then I'm going to say wake up at the same time every day. I think that would be my key 
trick. If you want to maybe vary it and sleep in a little bit on the weekends, no more than half an hour. The day is 24 hours long, but our biological clocks are a little bit longer than 24 hours. So when we wake up every morning, we actually reset our body's internal clocks to know when it's time to be awake and asleep. I'm going to go next. <laughs> so, I mean, I think we've talked a lot about technology. And so I would say one of the important things is to try to avoid the screens when you're trying to go to bed for a couple of reasons. One is the light that it emits can be stimulating. That's why, you know, we have these blue light filters and what have you. But the other thing is what you're going to be seeing on the screen might also be stimulating. So I would say trying to turn off the phones, turn off the TV, get off the laptop or the desktop or whatever when you can. Give yourself at least an hour before bed and maybe even more if, if possible. But you don't want those screens in your bed for sure. All right. That's good. You didn't take mine. Um, I, I really like, Nancy, how you included kind of like the content. I really focus on how the engagement piece. You don't want to do things that's like getting those reward centers in your brain, like firing that keep you aroused. The other piece of advice that I always give is you don't want to spend a lot of extra time in bed when you're not sleeping. And so that goes at the beginning of the night. The bed is an important environmental trigger for bringing on sleepiness. But if you get in bed and you're not sleepy and you're laying there and 15, 20 minutes go by, we don't want to create a cycle of conditioned arousal of your body expecting to be awake in bed. And so, you know, whether it's in the beginning of the night or you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't get back to sleep, Remove yourself from that situation. Go sit somewhere quiet. Do some of those wind down things, whether it's meditation, whether it's reading, whether it's watching something that's boring for you that gets you back into that zone. And then try again. You can't be willing yourself to fall asleep and sleeping at the same time. A lot of the times it's the barriers that we put in place that we need to peel away so that the system can just do what it has done for humans and all species for a millennia. Well, thank you for your top tips. Afifa Shamin Uzaman, Eric Prather, Nancy Kolob, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Yella. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you very much. It was fun and I learned a lot too. And thank you for listening. If you want to know more, please read the accompanying article on medicalnewstoday.com. I'm Dr. Yella Hewings-Martin. This is a high-vis radio production for Medical News Today. Thank you.